The HD Insights Podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. Hello, and welcome to Episode 3 of the HD Insights Podcast. I'm Kevin Gregory, Director of Education, Communications, and Outreach at the Huntington Study Group. On this episode, we spoke with Dr. Vicki Wheelock, who is a clinical professor at UC Davis Health. Dr. Wheelock is also the director of the UC Davis HDSA Center of Excellence and a longtime member of the Huntington Study Group. I think you'll find Dr. Wheelock to be very passionate about helping the HD community through clinical research and expanding knowledge about Huntington's disease to a larger global audience, as you'll learn later on. She is particularly active in the HD community, and our conversation was well-timed, as Dr. Wheelock and her team at UC Davis are serving as the host site for our annual HSG meeting being held in Sacramento this November. At the conclusion of this episode, I'll provide more information about the annual meeting and website information to register. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy episode three of the HD Insights podcast. Dr. Wheelock, thank you for joining us uh, today on the HD Insights podcast. I want to, you know, before we get started here, really want to kind of jump into your, your background. I think it's always important to understand how our researchers and people working in, in treatments for Huntington's disease have, have gotten to where they are now. So um, tell us a little bit about, you know, what got you into neurology and, and specifically how you ended up in, in the Huntington's disease field. Well, the answer is that I met an extraordinary woman. Um, I had started at UC Davis, uh, joined the, the department as a junior faculty member, and my former chair introduced me to Judy Robertson, who was at the time a member of the HDSA Northern California Chapter Board, and she was also um, a family member um, of uh, her husband had Huntington's disease and her brother-in-law was um, also affected and had started a foundation to help with Huntington's disease research and care. So I had a, um, a very incredible meeting with Judy Wilkerson back in April of 1997. She told me about her family. She brought me lots of pamphlets about HDSA. She um, provided lots of inspiration and um, at the time, the family was most interested in Huntington's research, but I didn't have a background in research at that time. I had a, my training was in clinical neurology, so I suggested that we would go ahead and start a clinic for Huntington's disease patients. And um, through Judy's networking, we found out about the Huntington Study Group. In fact, she had had our site, UC Davis, qualified um, the year before I met her with the first eight patients who came to UC Davis. So we were fortunate to be able to hire Terry Kempton, a nurse practitioner that I had met through the community and turned out to be an extraordinary partner 
in, in building our program. So we started our multidisciplinary clinic. We let people know about it. The chapter board and chapter board members were wonderful in doing outreach to let people know about our clinic. And, um, you know, things, things went forward from there. What were some of the challenges, you know, getting something like that started, um, re- you know, really from the ground up um, all those years ago? Was, was there any particular thing that sticks out to you as, you know, a, a challenge or was it pretty smooth and, and did you have a lot of support from um, the institution? I would say um, not, not a lot of challenges because of the funding that we were able to um, receive from the Joseph P. Robertson Foundation to help out with salary support. And in the early days, we also had funding from two other foundations, um, the Charles and Margaret P. Foundation and the Don Height Foundation. And we used those funds to pay the salaries of the people working in the multidisciplinary clinic. So to help um, to pay for our nurse practitioner, our genetic counselor, our physical therapist, our, and, and very importantly, our social worker, who's really the key position in the center. Um, so we were very fortunate uh, because of the generosity and the caring of these wonderful individuals to help um, start our clinic. I think all of them wanted there to be a clinic, especially for Huntington's disease, and they made that possible. And UC Davis was wonderful um, about, um, you know, providing the space and the, you know, the resources and things. They were very supportive of this, so there really were no barriers once we had the vision and once we had that um, very generous support. How how has the um, how has your center grown over the years? Like, you know, what kind of patient population size did you start out with, and and where are you now? Yeah, we started that first year. There were eight patients. Um, in the um, and, and within a year or so, we had probably 30 patients that we had seen. And then we were invited by HDSA to apply for Center of Excellence status. Um, I believe it was in 1999, maybe a year or two later. You know, very early in that program, and um, we applied. And the first year, we did not get accepted. I received the most lovely rejection letter of my career um, from Barbara Boyle at HDSA that was really a lovely letter saying, we're so sorry, we're not able to select and um, fund you this year, but we really want you to apply next year. And as I said, it was um, uh, very, it, it was something that was very memorable to me that, you know, don't, don't give up, just keep, you know, just keep trying, you know, you know, reapply next year. So when we reapplied, we were then awarded the status of being a center of excellence based on the fact that we had this multidisciplinary clinic and the resources in place. The first year after that designation, Kevin, um, we had 60 new patients come to wow. see us. So that designation really um, put us on the map and then families from all over knew about us um, and could start to come. And so um, over the years, we've tracked our um, tracked our visits and tracked our new patients and um, and the work that we've done. And I'm going to pause here for a second to bring a number in that I'd like to share with you. So I didn't have that opened up when we started, but I'd like to go ahead and do that. Absolutely. That that's um, a, amazing. Just even that jump from you know the first couple years after starting to get from you know an eight patients to to thirty in the first year, and then another jump up to sixty. Um, within just yeah, a couple of years' time. This was before social media, too, right? So, I mean, this was right. I mean, we had an internet, but it was, yeah, so the word really got out there. Um, 
so let's take a look here. Oh, that's one one folder that I wanted, but there's another one in here. Let's see. Yep. Okay. Because I do track these things because I've been very interested over the years in terms of what our um, you know what our numbers have been. So we have seen um, 663 new patients, and we've conducted 45. Hundred follow-up visits since 2001. How do you like those numbers? That is amazing. <laughs> that is absolutely um, amazing. Um, yeah, so we have a really, really busy center, and um, we are, um, are seeing lots more people now for predictive testing. We actually have um, a program put in place through our Health System for Anonymous predictive testing um, that's been operational since 2011. Before that, before the electronic health record, we were able to offer anonymous testing um, in the paper chart era, but once we got the electronic health record, we had to develop a process so that we could um, still see patients who were registered into the system, but we have a pseudonym for them, and many, many people who are doing predictive testing um, prefer to do it that way, so um, that's something that's been keeping us really busy as well. I've also tracked, um, you know, we joined the Huntington Study Group in in 1997, and back then there was the UHDRS project to bring people in for an observational visit using a UHDRS tool and to follow them over time. And since that time, we've participated in 18 Huntington's disease research studies, most of them through the HSG, uh, but not all. And I've tracked um, 1,900 Huntington's disease study patient visits since 2001, right? So we're very busy at our center, um, and we're really proud. Our, our mission really is centered on care and multidisciplinary care and the best possible care, but uh, um, our, our additional very significant mission is to participate in Huntington's disease research because we have this huge unmet need of treatment, um, and so we have always contributed to that and invited everybody that we see to be part of research if they'd like to. Um, and I think that that's one of the most important things about Huntington's is that we, we have hope for the future. We have hope for how research will impact our patients and their lives and, and the next generation for sure. And, and that brings up a great point because we've actually had um, some questions come in from, from people that have listened to the podcast. From your perspective, given that, you know, you've been a part of so many different um, studies and, and trials over the years, what are some of the more interesting research results that, that you've seen over that time in, in HD? And, and even now with a lot of, you know, some of the new novel uh, kind of treatments coming out, you know, what... what what are some of the interesting changes that you're starting to see in terms of research results? Um, good question, actually. So I think two pivotal things are we do have two drugs that are FDA approved for Huntington's disease in the United States, and um, that's tetrabenazine and dutetrabenazine. And those, of course, were studies that were done with the Huntington study group. So we've had that impact of having FDA-approved treatments for the chorea for Huntington's disease. But what's really been lacking um, overall has been the disease-modifying treatment that we hope would delay or prevent onset um, of Huntington's disease or to slow the progress of Huntington's disease um, until the time that we, of course, would have the cure that we're all looking for. So, um, so I think that uh, an overall perspective would be that through tremendous amount of work, 
with the Huntington Study Group, with our, with a lot of um, 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 wonderful colleagues, or I would say in North America, but around the world, uh, that we work with, and, and with many, many, many patients and families, we have this great set of observational data about the clinical manifestations of Huntington's disease and the progression and the types of challenges that people are faced with. So that's been done extraordinarily well, and that's sort of the foundation, I would say, for all the work that's coming forward now. That allowed um, the uh, investigators, and whether they're from uh, from the pharmaceutical industry or whether they're from government-sponsored research, to understand the best outcome measures that would show whether or not the treatment is making a difference. And that, that's uh, extremely important. Um, and I look back and I see that the Unified Huntington's Disease Rating Scale, which was developed way back in the early 1990s, has proven to be a very robust measure of how patients are doing and, um, with Huntington's disease and also a very robust measure of outcome. Um, but um, other things that I think are very interesting are the fact that we have biomarkers now, we have um, the ability to measure um, mutant Huntington protein in the cerebral spinal fluid. We have, I think, really interesting work going on about using volumetric imaging as an outcome measure. So those are two that I'm very excited about. Um, Ralph Raumann in Germany has a wonderful um, program for doing quantitative measures of motor performance, which are superb. And Julie Stout uh, has a, a wonderful uh, assay that she put together for patients to measure their cognitive abilities over time, and it's multidimensional, so different types of cognitive abilities are being looked at, and um, so these are all things that put into place um, the ability for us to have the current and the upcoming trials that will help us to tell if some of the potentially disease-modifying treatments are going to be effective or not. And I think that's a great point, and I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, without having that underlying data, you know, you wouldn't be seeing all these new types of, of treatments. So it's not, it's not a matter of people necessarily getting into studies where they're testing a, a drug. What you're saying is it's, it's equally as important to have these, these longitudinal or these long-term observational studies, correct? Absolutely. They, you know, they're the foundation over the work that we're doing now. But um, let's, but honestly, um, the excitement is in these um, current treatment trials, the um, two anti-synthologonucleotide trials um, that are ongoing right now with um, sponsors Wave and Roche are, I think, um, really terribly exciting for all of us as investigators and uh, Huntington's patients in the community are very excited about them. And um, this is the, you know, the best shot that we've had so far. And the thing that's so exciting about this is it's targeting the cause of Huntington's disease. It's going right to the messenger RNA for the protein. And to, to look at that as a potential treatment is very, very exciting. So I have a lot of hope right now. I have a lot of optimism about where we are. There are other things on the horizon that will be coming forward in the next year or two that I think are also um, super exciting. So um, this is, the, you know, clearly the best time in my career um, as far as what we're looking forward to in Huntington's research. That's incredible. And, and one of the other things in, in terms of, you know, expanding that, that knowledge base and that understanding 
And I know that you recently undertook was um, a delegation from UC Davis. Uh, you went to China, to um, Beijing, to uh, collaborate with a group there. Do you, can, can you tell us a little bit uh, about that experience and the tie-in with HD? Uh, certainly. So um, actually, Kevin, this is something that comes directly from um, from the Huntington Study Group, and let me tell you how that happened. Um, as you know, the HSG is very involved in continuing medical education for physicians and clinicians involved in caring for patients with Huntington's disease through the CMU for HD program that's led up by Mary Edmondson and Martha Nance. So another major mission of our center and also of the HSG and, and HDSA, of course, is to um, provide education and best practices and to help clinicians take care of patients with Huntington's because not every patient um, is able to live nearby or have access to a center of excellence. Um, many as we have now, there's still a gap in that care, but we also recognize that Huntington's disease is found in every country in the entire world. So a um, couple of years ago, the um, uh, CME for HD program was uh, videotaped and, and launched on the web so that people could go ahead and log in and um, take the course and become more, um, more familiar with and learn a lot about the clinical manifestations of Huntington's disease across the life. And uh, I was really interested to see uh, from the HSC a report a few months later about who was taking the course and who, who was looking at this and which, you know, where, where this was reaching. And it was astounding. It was everywhere in the world. You know, it was in South America and throughout North America and in Europe and Russia and uh, Australia. But I noticed something right away on the map. There was nobody in China, nobody in, um, in South Korea, nobody in Japan had um, walked in or looked at the course. And I, I wondered about that, and it got me thinking about the fact that we don't really have um, a lot of um, communication with, our, with, with uh, physicians and um, patients in China or uh, in Japan or in South Korea. And so it, I became pretty curious about that and wanted to try to understand that. So shortly after that came out, my colleague, um, Dr. Lin Zhang, who's a movement disorders neurologist um, in my department for many years now. And by the way, he did his fellowship at University of Rochester uh, before he came here um, to Sacramento. He has um, very deep connections um, in Beijing and through a, num a number of um, medical institutions and universities in China um, through doing uh, education through the Movement Disorder Society and other professional activities over the years. Um, he's hosted a number of um, neurologists to come as fellows to UC Davis to work in Parkinson's disease and movement disorders over the years. And he actually asked me many times to come on trips with him to China, and I was always busy with one thing or another. It just wasn't really a good time. But when he asked me in 2018, um, I had just seen this data about, um, uh, about the fact that we didn't have people adopting this education program in China, and I thought, um, you know, this would be a great opportunity to go meet clinicians there and find out what, you know, where are patients going who have Huntington's disease, and what are the care models there, and how do they approach this, and would there be any potential for collaboration, for research, for outreach, for care? Um, so the um, our, our partners in Beijing were interested in having a talk about stem cell research, and that's why they were reaching out to me to come. And I'm happy to talk about stem cell research and our project in, in uh, um, stem cell research for Huntington's disease. But I 
also um, reached out uh, and tried to find people that could partner with us um, around Huntington's disease, and it was a little bit difficult, but but we succeeded um, in finding um, um, the um, head of the neurogenetics program at um, Peking University, who is Dr. Uh, Wang, and then we also found Dr. Yui Huang, who is at Capitol University, and that was through a connection from Martha Nance and a member of EHDN that I found um, Dr. Huang, and we met in 2018 for the first time, got to know each other, um, shared um, updates about research, and then we had the opportunity to return this year in 2019, and as part of that visit, Dr. Wong um, decided to host a symposium for Huntington's disease patients at her institution, and she invited um, our group to give presentations to the family members. She also invited Ji Kao, who is the founder of the Chinese Huntington's Disease Association, to give a talk um, about her advocacy organization and about the status of Huntington's disease um, prevalence and um, the healthcare models and some of the unmet needs um, that she's seeing. Her organization has already started to develop um, wonderful materials, education materials and outreach. And um, so when we had the symposium, it was a wonderful opportunity to meet with patients and families who came from throughout China, not just from Beijing, but from, in some cases, very far away, to um, attend the symposium, to meet with Dr. Wong and her colleagues who are experts in Huntington's disease, and also to um, share resources and ask questions and for us to give information about the work that we're doing. It was an extraordinary experience, and I look back on that day of meeting with the patients and families, and um, they were extraordinarily warm and very welcoming. They had wonderful questions. I felt this real connection with these patients and families that, um, the same that I feel here in the United States, that this is a, a, a tremendous community, and they need um, they need partners in healthcare, and they are very... Um, very uh, open and very welcoming so that we can uh, learn from them and also do things with them together to try to help um, care and education and hopefully provide more opportunities in China for HD research. That's amazing. Is there any, is there any one thing that kind of sticks out in your mind that you were surprised to learn upon the visit or, or surprised to discover or something that wasn't expected? Um, I think I, I'm going to think about this for a second, Kevin. Um, this, let's see if there's anything that wasn't expected. Um, I think that, I'm, I'm, I'm pausing here or considering what my answer is going to be to this question. Um, I would say if there's anything that surprised me, it was the similarity and alliance of the patients and families mm. um, in China. I had not met them in 2018. This was the first time that I was meeting with them. And the idea that they have developed a network, that they're banding together, that they're holding education programs, that they're doing all the same things that we're doing, but that we hadn't yet met one another or formed a connection. Um, I think that was. A, I think that the, the surprising thing was that um, there's just I think a very natural affinity across 
even international boundaries for coming together and finding ways to enhance care and education about Huntington's. The, the, the infrastructure is there, and now it's the, it's the personal networking. It's the meeting one another and getting to know each other, just like it is here in the United States. That's how we can, um, we can help each other. We can elevate the care and elevate the level of education and, and importantly, provide hope to the patients and families for a better future, for better and better care, and for better treatment through research. We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. Um, Dr. Wheelock, I want to I kind of switch gears a little bit, but kind of piggyback something that you alluded to. You, you started talking about, you know, what initiated that, that exchange with, with the team in China was really the, the, um, what came out of the CME for HD uh, work that, that you've been a part of. And I know that currently with the courses that the HSG hosts online, your topic presentation is on the, the impact on youth uh, of, of HD. Um, so I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about there because you've been very involved um, with youth and, and with, um, with, with the juvenile uh, progression of the disease. So let's kind of start there. Um, you know, HD can really impact youth in, in two ways, either through direct development of system, uh, the symptoms by, you know, a, a child or by um, a child being kind of thrust into the role of caregiver or, you know, dealing with a parent who develops uh, symptoms of HD. I, I wanted to start with uh, maybe you talking a little bit about the latter, the, the burden on children who have a parent stricken with Huntington's disease. You know, what, what, do, you, what do you see in them? You know, what is the, the, the thing or the things that you try to do to help guide, you know, children who are, are dealing with that, that role as a caregiver at such a young age? Um, Kevin, great question. And um, I will tell you right now, I'm not an expert in this area. My, my, uh, I have experience as a, as a physician, um, seeing many, many patients over the years and seeing um, patients, you know, who bring their children or their, um, um, their grandchildren um, and by that, by children, I might even, you know, include either small children or teens or young adults to appointments with them. Um, and then fielding questions, of course, over the years from families who are concerned about um, a child at risk or concerned about a child, um, about their coping. But I do want to say that um, um, the experts in this area would be um, HDO, would be the people who are actually talking to and um, and directly interacting with 
with young people because I think that there's not always the opportunity to have these conversations in a clinic visit when we're caring for somebody who has Huntington's disease. But I, so I, think, but I think the most important thing in my perspective as a physician is that um, being open and being um, uh, comfortable if, if, the, if the adults, um, the grandparents and the parents and the aunts and uncles and uh, everybody in the family can be open with young people about talking about Huntington's disease and make it safe for children to ask questions from their parents, um, to, uh, of their parents, of their family members. That openness, that ability to be able to talk about Huntington's openly, I think is, is the single most important thing because there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of lack of knowledge, and, and those two things can make things so much worse. Um, I think it can really be, um, um, you know, very harmful. Um, and so if we are able to help encourage um, um, the adults to share information, to not be afraid to talk to young people and answer their questions, um, to give them enough information um, so that they can have their curiosity uh, satisfied, that's going to be super important. Um, the other thing, of course, is recognizing that the stress in the family um, uh, um, for somebody who has Huntington's disease affects every single person in that family. So we're always checking in about how various individuals are doing and talking about getting resources and having help for children, having school counselors um, or having um, counselors through, you know, through their health care um, you know, available to them to give them the support that they need, the importance of the community. Um, I really think it's important for young people to know about HTO, to know about um, NYA through HDSA, to have an outlet with their peers. Super important. Um, so that they can reach out and talk to other people who are going through the same thing because um, um, there's no one else who's better uh, able to help them, and I think that that type of help, we didn't used to have that. We used to get asked about that a lot in the early days, and now it's grown up, it's blossomed, in, uh, and it's very real and very accessible. Um, so I think that that would be the most important message I would give. So the openness and, and linking to those existing resources, super, super important. What about the, you know, what about the, the disease itself? So when HD is diagnosed in a child, it's, it's called juvenile Huntington's disease or, or, or JHD. But I've, I've heard you in conversations or, you know, when we've talked that um, it, it's more appropriate to call it juvenile onset HD. What, what makes that distinction so important? Well, a um, couple things. First of all, um, uh, juvenile is kind of a vague term. So, so our, our classical definition would be onset before age 21. And so I think some people who are 19 or 20 wouldn't necessarily consider themselves to be juvenile. So I think there's a little bit of a language piece there. But I think it's mostly because um, juvenile onset Huntington's is, um, you know, awfully rare. It's, it's very uncommon. So less than 10% of Huntington's disease happens before age 20, and then less than, you know, 1% or 2% before age 10 in the truly, you know, early childhood years. So we're talking about something that's really very rare. But um, it turns out that um, in the age group, especially between 10 and 20 or between 10 and 25, we sometimes are seeing HD onset. Um, in that group, and it's not something you just wake up with one day, as you know, it's a slow process to reach a threshold, a diagnostic threshold, 
um, with, with Huntington's. And so having the idea that there's a juvenile onset, that, it, that the process started, that maybe some of the symptoms or some of the challenges started before age 21, maybe they weren't diagnosed um, before age 21, they were present, and they are very apparent in, um, in young people um, in, their, you know, in their 20s and in their 30s, I think is an important part of this. So that's why I think it's more correct to use the juvenile onset um, the span of age that can, ages that can be affected and the fact that it's the onset of the disease, but then it extends into adulthood for people who have onset, you know, above age 10 years. You talked about HDO and the work that, that they do and the, the need to bring in, you know, other resources into play. This year, um, UC Davis is serving as the host site for the HSG annual meeting, HSG uh, 2019 in November, and I know you've been instrumental in helping pull together a planning committee um, for the Family Day event on the Saturday of that that session um, on November 9th. Tell us a little bit about the the group that you pulled together. I I think it's an absolute powerhouse, but it's very well representative of the advocacy community that you have out in Sacramento and in the Northern California Bay Area, um, as well as an agenda that's very inclusive for youth, for families, for adults, for caregivers. Um, just you know, talk a little bit about the, the team that you've, you've brought in and, and some of the names you talked about at the very beginning of this podcast uh, are involved as well, correct? Yeah, yeah, so actually, so Martha Nance is actually the lead on uh, from the HSG for organizing um, this day, and we started phone calls, as you know, uh, way back in the beginning of the year for this, so um, I want to, you know, thank her hugely for all of her efforts in doing this. Um, we have um, a powerhouse of Huntington's disease advocates and patients and families in Northern California, um, and so I mentioned Judy Robertson, um, who is the president of the Joseph P. Robertson Foundation. Um, we also have a wonderful chapter, HDSA, Northern California chapter, and chapter membership is involved. We are so fortunate to have Katie Jackson and Help for HD, um, also in, uh, based here in the Sacramento area, although of course they have a global reach. Um, and then I um, asked Terry Temkin, who was um, my dear colleague and partner in this work for 18 years before she retired, in 2016 to join us as well uh, in planning this committee. Terry's working post-retirement um, with Help for HD, and she's involved in a lot of the programming that they're doing around the country and internationally. So um, that would describe um, the people who are um, involved in, uh, in the planning committee, but we've been able, um, through your help and also um, through Kristen's help, to engage HDO to engage, um, you know, through Katie and Terry and Judy, a number of family members and advocates from um, California, but also from throughout the country, who are going to come together to help uh, with our vision of presenting a family program that will be um, uh, targeting HD across the life cycle. So we have a lot of programming for youth and young people and people with juvenile onset Huntington's disease, but also um, for people with more typical onset in adult life. And we are going to cover late onset Huntington's disease because we have families where um, there's a very late onset. In some of those families, it's a first recognition of Huntington's in the family. Um, 
so um, there's quite quite a need, I would say. But this has been um, a joy to work with these experts and wonderful advocates. They have great ideas, and uh, I'm very excited about the programming for Family Day, and I'm very happy that we can offer this to the um, regional families and maybe some from out of town who will be coming for the meeting because I can promise them that they will be um, 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 hearing from from tremendous experts and people with great um, experience and insights into Huntington's disease. Um, so it's going to be a great day. And, and you mentioned, you know, the, the concept of this session and, and the location being regional. I know that, you know, you, you coordinate correct with a, with a number of HD centers that are, are pretty close in proximity. So you have a really large patient population that, uh, that you interact with. We do. Actually, we have um, an affiliation with Kaiser Northern California. So we um, have an affiliation with their Huntington's Disease Clinic, which is also a center of excellence. And then our sister universities, UC San Francisco and Stanford, are both a couple of hours away. Um, so in Northern California, we have four centers of excellence. We have, um, you know, the HDSA chapter. We have Help for HD. We have um, just a, a richness of resources on these family foundations who've been helping to support HD care and research uh, over the years. Um, I'm really so proud that HSG will be coming to our region and that our region will be able to get up close and friendly with the members of the Huntington Study Group and to see the latest and greatest research and what's coming in the future, but also for the HSG to be able to see the tremendous community that we have here in Northern California. Well, so to I, me, it's win-win. Yeah, absolutely. And I can tell you, we're very excited to be there. I, personally, I love um, visiting Sacramento. I think I think people will will enjoy it. It's it's usually a perfect time of year at the beginning of, of November. So um, we're we're very excited to be there. Um, Dr. Wheelock, I just want to uh, wrap it up with a couple quick questions for you, uh, you know, on a personal level. And I like to ask this of everybody that we talk to. But uh, the, the first question is, you know, in your career, who's the one person that, or if you know, there could be multiple people, I suppose, but who do you most consider your mentor? Okay. First name that comes up is Martha Nance. The first Huntington's meeting that I attended was the HDSA National Convention in 1997. Um, that was in Rochester, New York, and um, hosted, really, I think, hosted by the HSG and the chapter there. And I went to all the talks, and I identified uh, these are the people who know everything. So that was Martha Nance and Mark Gutman and um, uh, Iris Schulzman was there. And um, uh, that was the first time that I met him. But I really reached out to Martha as a mentor. She's been tremendously helpful to me and taught me a great deal because I have lots to learn about Huntington. Um, I also um, uh, think of uh, Sue Perlman, who is at UCLA, as another really important mentor in uh, Huntington's disease and neurogenetics. Um, Tom Bird is another person that I always look up to tremendously. But I, I think the, the, um, the person that's been the, um, the greatest inspiration to all of us has been Iris Olson, starting the Huntington Study Group and the work that he did and the organization that he built. Um, no, no other person could have done what he did. And I think there are many, many Iris Wilson acolytes out there um, who were very lucky to work with him and attend the annual meetings and be part of studies that he uh, that he headed. Um, so that would be my list. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I've uh, had the 
pleasure. I mean, he's still very active, and uh, I'm uh, enjoying some some projects that uh, that we're working closely with him on. Um, Dr. Wheelock, the last question I'll ask you uh, today is, um, what what is the thing in your life that you consider your proudest accomplishment? And and believe me, it sounds like you've you've had a lot of them, and I know you're very enthusiastic and, and energetic about all of them, but if there's one thing you could point to above all else, what would that be? Um, one thing in my life would be my family, without a doubt. That's the most important thing to me. That's the thing I'm proudest of and the thing that's um, nearest and dearest to my heart. So um, I, I very much want to say that I've been, I've been blessed um, by, um, by my family, by all generations of my family, from my parents on down. Um, I do think that everyone in my family knows a little bit about Huntington's and that my uh, immediate family, my husband and my son, have been um, very understanding of their mom working hard on Huntington's disease all these years. They supported me a great deal. and um, So that's the thing that I'm the proudest of. So if, if there's something professionally that I'm proudest of, it that is um, I'm proudest that um, I that Terry Temkin and I were able to launch our program in the way that we did, and that we were able to attract a phenomenal team of people to work together. So the people that I work with in my center are people that I. Uh, I, I would trust with my life and that um, give great meaning to my professional career by virtue of their excellence and their really strong connection and caring for Huntington's patients and families. They're tremendous experts. But also I have wonderful new um, young colleagues, two younger colleagues, and I see that our center has a future um, beyond my time in the department as well. I can see that the program that we started is one that will be sustaining and we'll be doing Huntington's care and Huntington's research for many years to come. Um, but when we have a cure, we're going to be very busy too. So we're going to need to have a very strong clinical presence so that we can identify and test and care for and treat uh, patients from families with Huntington's disease. So I'm really proud of the fact that there's such a phenomenal team um, assembled. Well, again, we thank you so much for joining us on the HD Insights podcast, Dr. Wheelock. It's, it's been our pleasure to chat with you, and we look forward to seeing you at HSG 2019 in Sacramento, um, November 7th through the 9th. Thank you very much, Kevin. Appreciate it. That concludes our conversation with Dr. Vicki Wheelock from UC Davis. During the conversation, Dr. Wheelock discussed a few items that I wanted to share some further information on for our audience regarding CME for HD training and our annual meeting. CME for HD is a free training offering from the Huntington Study Group, and while it's intended primarily towards an audience of healthcare providers, anyone can take the training. The online self-paced content follows the course and progression of HD and offers critical insights from our highly experienced HSG faculty members. Healthcare professionals can also earn up to 3.25 continuing education credits. For more information and to sign up for a free account, go to huntingtonstudygroup.org slash CME for HD online. That's Huntington Study Group, all one word, dot org slash c m e the number four h d 
hyphen online. We also talked at length about the HSG annual meeting. HSG 2019 Navigating HD is being held this year in Sacramento, California at the downtown Hyatt Regency. Each year, the Huntington Study Group holds our annual meeting in a different city and brings together the leading HD experts, researchers, investigators, coordinators, prominent members of the HD community, HD advocacy, and industry together. The goal of the annual meeting is to provide a forum to share knowledge, ideas, and the latest in HD research. The main general sessions will be held on Thursday, November 7th, and Friday, November 8th. For more information on the main sessions, agenda, and registration, please visit huntingtonstudygroup.org slash HSG 2019-REG. In addition to the main sessions, we also hold a Family Education Day event on Saturday, November 9th. This event is geared specifically for HD patients, family members, and caregivers to learn more about the things that are most important to them, while also hearing more about the latest developments in HD treatments. HSG 2019 Family Day is free to attend, but we ask that you sign up online so that we can ensure adequate seating and food. For more details on the agenda and a link to sign up, go to huntingtonstudygroup.org slash HSG 2019-Family Day. Family Day is all one word in this. Thank you again for downloading and listening to the HD Insights Podcast. Look for Episode 4 with Dr. Victor Sung from the University of Alabama at Birmingham coming soon. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org. Or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.